0: See it, find it, auto trader. I am the
1: ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest.
2: Where are you taking me?
1: Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket?
4: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry Jerome Rowland and you put the three of us together, uh, put some super glue between us, hold us together for an hour and a half. Oh boy. You've got an episode of Stuff You Should Know. <laughs>
1: Uh, I love, Livia helped us with this. I love her title of this one. It was titled The Awe-Inspiring, Absolutely Crucial Amazon. Yep. And that's what we're going to talk about. This amazing biome about the size of the continental United States. Mm-hmm. That is, you want me to keep going? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is so big that it has... Uh, I mean, how big is it compared to the world? Like one percent of the world
0: of the Earth's surface, yes.
1: But houses about thirty percent of the biodiversity.
0: Yeah, the the world's terrestrial species. I mean, like it's it's really difficult to overstate just how unique and important the Amazon rainforest is. It's. Just, I want to go now. Yeah, um, I like looking at pictures of it. <laughs> it would be cool. I, I'm sure it would be cool, but it'd be one of those things where I wish I could just teleport there and, like, hang out and then teleport home. Like, that's probably a big trip to get into the Amazon these days, you know?
1: Yeah, and I'm also curious about what kind of trips are good trips that don't disturb things in such a way, like, where you're not just some, like, cruddy American tourist doing the wrong thing, you right, know? Right, for sure,
0: for sure. But one of the things about the Amazon is that a lot of people... um, Take it as this pristine, untouched natural wilderness that we're trying yeah. to protect. And for a very long time, that's what that was the consensus not just among the general public but among anthropologists, archaeologists, um a bunch of different ologists mm-hmm. that that and that the people who had lived there lived so lightly upon the land that they they were almost you know, they were they were almost having about the same impact as some of the other like some of the wildlife there, that it just wasn't, they weren't impacting it enough to even consider it a significant amount. And that that Amazon was just this natural gift on Earth um, that we we had, you know, as, as part of our, our cultural or our global heritage, right?
1: Yeah, like a giant nas- international park or something.
0: Exactly. So what we've come to find is that that's absolutely not the case, that the Amazon was actually not... Entirely, but significant chunks of it were um, engineered by humans and that probably the best way to preserve it is to hand as much as we can of it over to the humans who have traditionally lived there or who are the, the descendants of the people who engineered it years
1: back. Yeah, which, uh, well, we got some stats on that later, but I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, we should probably start further back than humans even, because the Amazon has been around for about the last 15 million years, and it started out as a
1: giant lake. Yeah, a big freshwater lake. Uh, And over time, like to the tune of millions of years, uh, sea levels fell, and eventually, you know, things are going to change, geologically speaking, around it. And it became a wetlands. And then about 11 million-ish years ago, it finally turned into a river system uh, flowing east into the ocean. Um, but that wasn't all, right? It, things continued to change from there.
0: Yeah. Um. So, basically, they carved the the rivers flowing from the headwaters in the Andes eastward toward the Atlantic. Um, they carved, uh, well, they made an impression on the continent, and they also brought sediment to the river, so soil started to grow, um, which is really significant because tropical rainforest uh, soil is typically – rather infertile because it's so hot and so humid that stuff decomposes basically too quickly to create nutrients trapped in the soil. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that there were sediments, that there were nutrients being brought into it by the river is what allowed the uh, Amazon basin to become so lush.
1: Yeah, and diverse. Mm -hmm. So um, still, this is, you know, like 11 millionish years ago, you had savannas, um, you had big patches, like um, Olivia called them islands of forests, mm-hmm. and you had all sorts of sort of smaller biomes, and then through different ice ages, ages? We'll just call them ages. Sure, Things were changing, things were shifting, it became uh, wetter, then it became drier, mm-hmm. the river uh, system would change direction, like in the its flow, and basically if you go back about 5 million years, is where you finally get to the point where the Amazon, kind of as we know it, uh, speciologically speaking—I mm-hmm. don't know if that's a word—but mm-hmm. that's kind of where things started, as far as what we know lives there today.
0: Yeah, you would if you went back five million years, four million years, you would probably recognize it more than you would have, you know, several million years before that. Yeah. So for the past thirteen thousand years, at least. Humans uh, have been shaping the Amazon as well. Um, we've talked a lot about some of the lost civilizations of the Maya um, and other Mesoamerican um, uh, groups, indigenous groups. Well, they, uh, they were no strangers to the Amazon basin. And so in much the same way that we've discovered ancient Maya cities, we've also discovered uh, other ancient cultures in the Amazon as well. We'll talk a little more about them in a second, but one of the big marks that humans left on the Amazon was something called terra preta, which is black soil in Portuguese. And black soil refers to highly fertile, highly productive soil found in huge swaths of the Amazon basin um, that were basically created, these soils were created a couple thousand years ago they're still fertile today. They still, you can still put a plant in one of th- in this soil and not fertilize it, and it will grow very, very well. Which again is really uncharacteristic for an Amazon rainforest. So they started looking into it, and they found that there was a technique that was either purposeful or accidental. Either way, it created this terra preta, where they would um, they would create landscapes of biochar. They would do these low intensity burns that didn't burn trees all the way down into ash, but left huge chunks of charcoal, which got subsumed into the soil along with food waste and sometimes broken pottery, and that that would hold this um, organic available carbon in the soil, again, for thousands of years. And they're, they're I feel like the consensus is leaning more toward this was a purposeful thing yeah. that they did to create the soil because we also know that they um, used it for agriculture too.
1: Yeah, so the the thought that it was just hunters and gatherers uh, for many, many th- tens of thousands of years is looking like that's not true. And It was more hunters and farmers. Right. Uh, they probably did some gathering as well, sure. I imagine, if there yeah. was something to gather.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, they weren't like, I'm not gathering anything. It's not part of the job description. <laughs> <laughs> we know how to plant things. We know how to engineer this great soil. Yeah. Um, but there is evidence that they, they were, you know, domesticating plants back as far as like 6,000 BCE. Mm-hmm. Uh, And on the same note, there's just so much we thought we knew about the early indigenous peoples of the Amazon that was completely wrong, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. Uh, And one is like how many people were there and how they lived and what they basically kind of come to the conclusion now after, you know, a couple of hundred years of thinking otherwise is when Europeans would encounter like a sort of smallish tribe of um, disparate people it wasn't just that they were roaming around the Amazon. It's that they were displaced Mm -hmm. by those very Europeans. And that at one time there were groups uh, in the Amazon that numbered in the, you know, two or three thousands and that those groups lived near enough to each other where they were larger groups of up to like a million people that were like building roads and using uh, sort of rudimentary tools and planting things and Mm -hmm building six-story-high complex structures.
0: Yeah, there's one particular complex called the Llanos de Mojos. Uh, It's about the size of England, and it housed about a million people um, in, I believe, the beginning of the last millennium to about the 1400s, I think. And uh, in particular, there was the Casarabe culture, um, and they uh, did what was considered low-density urbanism,
1: Cultivated you put another letter in there, by the way.
0: I looked it up. That's correct,
1: though. Oh, really? Uh huh. So, Olivia left it out. Yeah, I believe so. All right. Look at
0: you, Casarabe. Finally, my <laughs> addition of an extra vowel really comes in handy. All right. Because I would have either way, whether it was correct or not. You know. All right. So, but they did. They did what you were talking about, where they built these structures. They built raised uh, terraces that. So that their cropland wasn't affected by regional or um, seasonal flooding. They connected these villages by raised causeways. Um, They did all this amazing stuff. And then because of probably climate change, like we saw in the, you know, what happened to the Maya civilization episode Mm -hmm. we did, uh, they abandoned these structures. And then once the Europeans showed up and introduced smallpox, that that was it. Like, whatever um, civilizations were left were wiped out to the tune of potentially 90% of the inhabitants of the Amazon were wiped out by smallpox starting in the 16th century onward. Um, And then, so, yeah, when the Spaniards came across these, you know, wandering bands of hunter-gatherers, they just assumed that's what had always been there, who had always been there. And it turns out that these were essentially refugees from European conquest, smallpox, and a climate change essentially, and that they didn't—they didn't really resemble the cultures that they had come from at all.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but the Spaniards were writing about these big interconnected roadways mm-hmm. that were maintained and mm-hmm. wide and usable between these uh, different villages, and they would write about those. And for uh, you know a couple hundred years, people were just like scholars and researchers were just like, yeah, they—they clearly mistook it. Or that just definitely wasn't going on. And now they're thinking like, oh, those probably were roads.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those amazing reversals of understanding that you rarely find in history where these stories of legendary lost cities actually were true and we're finding them now. It's pretty thrilling, actually. I mean, from a historian's point of view. (laughs) Not like, I don't know. From a computer programmer's (laughs) point of view, it's so-so.
1: Um so that gets us kind of where we are today which is um the Amazon rainforest is in nine countries in mm-hmm. South America. Mm-hmm. Uh most of it 60% of it is in Brazil and then the rest is divided among uh, Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, uh, Guyana, Suriname, Ecuador and French Guiana. Right. Is so, that right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think they just spell it differently cuz they're Les français.
1: Yeah, and that's 2 million square miles, not acres, my friends, square miles. Know, it's so mind boggling. That, uh, like we said, has uh, about 10% of all known species on planet Earth uh-huh. uh, reside there and 30% of terrestrial uh, land walking species.
0: There's a really great stat that seems to be accurate. I don't think it's just one of those copy paste um, uh-huh. stats.
1: The ants one? Yeah,
0: that yeah. on on certain bushes in the Amazon, you may find more species of ants on that one bush than you'll find in the entire British Isles. <laughs> that's how
1: biodiverse
0: this area is.
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons, like I do want to go visit because it sounds amazing and, and life-changing. But then when I think of, and I'm not necessarily afraid of insects or anything, but I think it's so buggy and insecty it's even someone who's not too bothered by it can kind of be pushed over the edge
0: my friend the um largest spiders in the world are found in the amazon in particular tarantulas that are 13 inches or about 33 centimeters across can you imagine seeing a tarantula coming at you that's a foot across i would just be like just kill me now i know you can't kill me but please figure out a way to kill me tarantula
1: Oh. Because you know
0: they're not actually deadly to humans. They're what? They're not deadly to humans. They're just terrifying looking.
1: No, they're deadly in that you you die of a cardiac arrest <laughs> right. when one of them sinks their fangs into you yep. with their, and looks at you with their, I don't know, what do they have, like 200 eyes? At least. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, the life in the Amazon rainforest and in all rainforests really um, are divided up vertically. Like there's basically different ecosystems from the tops of the trees down to the forest floors. They're so radically different that um, just going up and down a single tree, you find all this different kind of life and not only different kinds of life, different climates depending on Mm -hmm. where you are. If you're at the top of the rainforest and the overstory or the canopy, that's a much different world than it is down at the shrub level. It's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I guess we should start at, what you said was the overstory, mm-hmm. uh, or that's also known as the emergent layer.
0: Where did Orlando Calrissian live?
1: Uh, Sky City or something? Yeah, I can't remember. Okay, that's basically that. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I'm sorry, Star Wars people. I'm a Star Wars guy, but I don't remember all that stuff.
0: I think it was Sky City or Skyville, USA, something like that. Yeah, Skyville,
2: got... <laughs> <laughs> USA.
1: He's like, did you get your t-shirt when you flew in? <laughs> Yakov Smirnoff is playing tonight. So there are, uh, we're talking tall, tall trees, a couple of hundred feet tall sometimes, that limbs spreading out a hundred feet wide, blowing and dropping seeds all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then under that, you're going to have your canopy. Um, That is where you have your overlapping tree branches. And this remarkably holds 60 to 90% of life in the Amazon Lives in the Isn't canopy. That nuts in the canopy. It is crazy. Yeah, and
0: also I saw that these branch these branches just appear to overlap, especially from an airplane overhead. But if you actually could walk from tree to tree, you would see that there none of the trees touch. There's like a few feet difference between the trees in the canopy, and it's a mystery. They have no idea exactly why the trees don't grow touching one another. Um... They think that's probably to keep from diseases from spreading or like, you know, um, destructive beetles from being able to to climb from one tree to another. But they actually don't touch and they stay about a foot or so, a couple feet away from one another on all sides. Isn't that fascinating?
1: Oh, I I figured they overlap, meaning they don't touch, but they overlapped uh, vertically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll do that, but they don't actually touch. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. They just go, I'm not touching you to one another. Right, okay. <laughs> um, the canopy, like you said, is a completely different environment. You're going to have all kinds of uh, fun uh, birds and lizards and sloths and monkeys and all kinds of creatures and plants up there, mm-hmm. 100 feet up sometimes.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's much hotter. You talked about the different climates, uh, much hotter and much drier during the day. And it's there's a lot of canopy out there, so... The visibility is very poor, right. so there's a lot of noise because they're all chirping at one another.
0: Yeah, and 100 feet up at the canopy and then, you know, another 100 feet at the overstory, there's a lot more wind. It's really being blasted by bright sunlight. Mm-hmm. And that's just, again, a different world from underneath the canopy on the shrub layer, the forest floor. It's really humid. The The light is dappled. Um, it's, it's very rarely direct in places. Um, and... For that reason, you have like a much steadier kind of climate than you have at the top. And, um, yeah, that's where that decomposition happens really, really fast so that forest soils can't, um, don't hold in nutrients very well.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we mentioned that there is a lot of life in the overstory as well. Uh, You're going to find monkeys up there, too. There there can be a snake in a tree just living his life 180 feet up in the air. Mm Mm-hmm. And bats, insects, eagles, uh, all kinds of birds. Something else I found,
0: Chuck, that I thought was fascinating is that the, the study of rainforest life is still kind of in its infancy because it's so hard to consistently get to these places to yeah. study this life. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Apparently— and, like, Good in a way. I saw that now that drones are here, um, especially yeah. little handheld drones, it's making yeah. it much, much easier and less destructive, to be honest. Yeah, that's uh, true. So they'll probably advance, but there's still a lot more to be learned in that that field.
1: Yeah. Uh, I guess we should talk about rain. Yep. Because it's a rainforest, and it does rain a lot uh, compared to uh, the most rainy state in the United States. Do you know what that is? Texas. It is Mississippi. Mississippi. Uh, Atlanta's pretty high up there, too. I think Atlanta's top five or six. I believe it. I call it the Seattle of the South, man. (laughs) Well, this is talking about total rainfall. I think that's the, um, you know, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you understand this. But if you just think like, uh, you know, Atlanta, it rains a lot more than in Seattle and Portland, but they have more days of rain, more of those drizzly sort of dark days. Whereas in Mississippi and Atlanta in the southeast, it's just pouring hard hmm. rain mm-hmm. uh, to the tune of, in Mississippi, about five and a half feet a year. Wow. In Atlanta, we get about 4.3 feet per year. Uh, in the Amazon, they get between six and ten feet of rainfall a year. That's <laughs> so nuts. So up up to double what the rainiest state here gets. And most of it from, close to it from December to May alone during the rainy season. Yeah. I mean, that's what, packed in four or five months? Yeah. That's it's rainy
0: pretty impressive
1: uh, but I don't know if it's the time to visit or not but it does not rain much in August that's the driest month and they only get a couple of inches in August yeah
0: so I say we take a break and then come back and talk some more about the Amazon rainforest what do you think let's do it
3: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, we're back. Uh, We've talked a lot about animals. Uh, We're going to talk more about animals and birds and insects and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people in the Amazon rainforest. And again, like you, I think I sort of pictured it as uh you know these um, largely undisturbed tribes that are still just hunting and gathering mm-hmm. and that's all but that's not true about 34 million people live within the the ring of the Amazon rainforest
0: yeah that's nuts. there's a, a whole city manaus brazil um has a population of 2 million in the amazon um and then i think uh, out of those um How many people did you say live there? 34 million? 34 total. Uh, Between one and a half and three are indigenous people who have lived there. These are like their ancestral lands. Um, And a good hundred of the, I think, 350 to 500 distinct indigenous societies in the Amazon are uncontacted. Um, Which, if you'll remember, our Man in the Hole episodes, Mm -hmm. both of them, I believe. Um, I think we did two episodes on them. Uh, they, uncontacted doesn't mean like they're not aware people exist. They don't want, they don't want to have anything to do with outsiders, usually because of a terrible thing that befell them and or their families.
1: Yeah. It's their thanks, but no thanks tribes.
0: Exactly. So I think like 35% of the Amazon right now make up indigenous territories, which is good for the Amazon, because as we mentioned at the outset, one of the things they figured out is the best way to preserve the rainforest is to hand control of it over to the indigenous groups. So you can chalk up about 35% of the Amazon is safe right now.
1: Right. Um, If animals are something you like to talk about, then the Amazon is a pretty great place to be because... There are a lot of fauna and uh, megafauna in the rainforest. And one of the stars of the show is certainly the Jaguar.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No. For real?
1: The Jaguar.
0: The Jaguar.
1: Yeah. If you're buying a car, it's a Jaguar.
0: Yeah. The Jaguar. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where we got the wire from, but that's what we say, right?
1: Yeah. That's how we say it. And this is just a beautiful, beautiful beast uh, that used to be. Uh, much more common sadly in the southwestern u s even mm-hmm. all the way down to South America and places like Argentina but about forty percent of their range has been lost yeah uh, in Central and South America and and not over hundreds and hundreds of years this is in within the last like thirty or forty years yeah. uh, and now they are uh, considered near threatened and these these animals like to move a lot so they have ex- huge extensive ranges of hundreds of kilometers but they just don't have them in this area anymore.
0: Yeah, no. Um, there's about 10,000 of them in the Amazon, which is now their largest contiguous area of habitat. But because the jaguars get so much um, attention, uh, some of the other ones get ignored unless you start to dig beneath the surface. And when you do, you'll find there's the jaguarundi, the mm-hmm. ocelot, yeah. the margay, the oncilla. And that last one, the oncilla, is a little, like, five-pound cat. With a leopard coat that is just adorable standing on a little very tree cute. branch, yeah um, they're all very beautiful for sure, animals, but they vary in different sizes, shapes, coats, but a lot of them look like like they have a house cat head on like a mini leopard body or something like that. It's
1: kind of cool I'm saving my dad jokes from now on after the bee incident, by the way.
0: Oh no, I think everybody's <laughs> been been pretty much in favor that it was definitely
1: worthwhile. Oh, I've had a couple of yays and a couple of nays so far. Oh, I far. Didn't see the nays. Uh, my point that I made to one of them was like, if I wrote that joke down and told it, it's probably pretty terrible. But it was off the dome.
0: Yeah, I thought it was great. I still, like, I wake up laughing thinking about it almost every morning.
1: <laughs> so I won't make jokes about ocelots and ocelittles. <laughs> Not going to do it anymore.
0: I think that's a good good choice in this right, case.
1: Good. There's also monkeys. Oh, lots of monkeys. A hundred and fifty plus species of monkey everything you could imagine I love how Olivia put this one the nightmarish looking uh, bald uh, I guess that's uakari monkey yeah you need to look that one up it's oh really I did neat it looks like the the uh, it looks like <laughs> this sounds awful to say it looks like a monkey who had his face peeled off Wow yeah it does look like that a lot it's just a very bright red. It looks like it a wound almost.
0: Yeah, or like it has an angry, angry sunburn on its face only. Yeah. It's really neat looking. It's a cool monkey. Um, there's also squirrel monkeys, which are basically what you would think. They're very tiny, mm. but they're considered large-brained if you put any stock in brain-to-body ratio, because they have large brains considering how small they are. And they live in massive groups of up to 300 And I looked up, um, I was looking at them and somebody asked on Google, are are squirrel monkeys good pets? And the answer to that is a thousand times no. Oh, really? Yeah, because they have to have constant stimulation. So you have to pay attention to them basically constantly. And if you don't pay attention to them, they will just start messing stuff up all over the place and making your life miserable. So my, my advice to you is no, you don't want a squirrel monkey as a pet.
1: I had not looked that up until just now, and I get why people want them as pets. Yeah. They are
0: cute. They're very cute, and they're, I'm sure, a lot of fun to hang out with, but maybe just in the jungle, you know? <laughs> if you don't
1: pay them enough attention, they'll peel their face off <laughs> and become bald Uakari monkeys. <laughs> That's
3: right.
1: <laughs> so, uh, um, these monkeys are very valuable to the ecosystem, though. They uh, are not just for looks and being cute and making fun noises mm-hmm. and, like, being cheeky and stealing food off your plate. Mm-hmm. They play very key roles. They uh, they're up there uh, chowing down on leaves and they're going to be pooping that stuff out They're going to be spreading seed. That's going to, um, you know, the trees are going to be more productive because they're going to be like, something's eating me. I need to grow more. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, you know, we always talk about the domino effect in these ecosystems. Then there are more insects that are feeding on these little leaves. That means more birds are going to be eating the insects and it just goes down the chain and it's good for everybody.
0: Yep. They also uh, eat seeds or fruits and then poop the seeds out, which plants more trees. And they benefit humans by sampling dates to find out if they're bad and poisonous <laughs> first.
1: I told you we just watched that recently, and that, that scene was uh, tough. The only solace in was that it was a Nazi monkey. Yeah. And uh, even my daughter at seven and a half was like, yeah, that monkey was no good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <I>, uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of movies, I, so I saw that on the plane. On the way out. And then on the way back. You I saw Raiders? Saw, you watched it? Yeah, I watched like the first, oh. third or half or something like
1: that. Yeah, that's good comfort food.
0: Um, and then on the way back, I watched uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Have, for the first time? Yeah. That's one of the most magnificent <laughs> movies I've ever seen in my life, man.
1: Oh, I hate that you had to see it on an airplane.
0: It was fine. I was, yeah. you know, I, like I had something in my eye for like sure. the last third of it. And like it was That was, gosh, anybody who has not seen that movie, (laughs) see that movie and just make sure you're wide open for it.
1: Oh, boy. It was great. I I saw it in the theater. um, Yeah. I never got used to the hot dog fingers. (laughs) I thought that was so (laughs) great. Spoiler alert. There are hot dog fingers. (laughs) Uh, What else do they have out there? They have the Pink River Dolphin. Mm Mm-hmm. The Botos, which is pretty amazing. They swim up in those flooded forests and tributaries. Yeah, I just thought that was so cool, Chuck, that they
0: had, um, that they swam in the forests. Yeah. Uh, That's just amazingly cool.
1: Yeah, you got your eyes out for the Jaguar and you're like, look out for that dolphin.
0: (laughs) Right? The pink one coming at you.
1: Yeah, and they're pinkish. Like, uh, I I was expecting more pink than I got when I looked them up. Mm hmm. But, uh, yeah, they're pinkish. And it looks like their little snouts are way, way longer, right? Uh, Yeah, they do look a little.
0: They need it to burrow past all the the stumps in the flooded forest. And if you want color, my friend, forget the pink river dolphins and focus your attention on poison dart frogs. Yeah,
1: and stay away.
0: Dozens. Yeah, don't get close. Just look at pictures. There's dozens and dozens of species of them. And they are so beautiful. They're just like the different colors and how vibrant they are. And like, yeah. how is that not glow in the dark paint? It just, it's just mind boggling. But ironically, the, um, so they're called poison dart frogs because, the, um, tribes have used their, their toxins that they naturally secrete uh, for blow dart hunting, right? Mm-hmm. That's where they get their name. But the, ironically, the, the, um, least colorful of them all, the golden poison dart frog is the deadliest they have mm. enough toxin in them to kill 10 people. This tiny wow. little frog does. So steer clear of the golden poisoned dart frog. If there's one lesson in this episode, it's that.
1: <laughs> uh, we won't get too detailed, but there are all kinds of rodents. There are all kinds of terrestrial mammals roaming the ground. Uh, the birds just forget about it. They, I mean, <laughs> you, you want to go see a toucan up in a tree? Mm-hmm. Or a macaw, that's where you're going to find them. Uh, And that's, I think, would be one of the kind of coolest parts for me is looking up and seeing those birds that you've seen in like cartoons and they're real and they're just flying wild.
0: Yeah, flying past you going, just follow my nose.
1: (laughs) Uh, You got electric eels, you got tarantulas, you got piranhas and snakes. All kinds of things also want to kill you in the Amazon. Yeah, the bullet ant,
0: which is the insect with the uh, most pa- most painful sting of any living thing in the world, lives in the Amazon.
1: Yeah, no a- thank you.
0: And I came across one more thing about animals. I came across another word that uh, is kind of like mast that I love. Um, browse. Just like, just like you browse through a book, browse is a word for the leaves and twigs of trees and shrubs that animals oh. eat. I like that. You got brows, you got mast, put it together. You got a uh, dinner for a tapir.
1: (laughs) Uh, What's a tapir? You might as well go ahead and say.
0: So it's, it looks like it's, um, it looks like a pig with a short elephant trunk, but it's more related to horses and rhinoceri.
1: Yeah. I think we should do uh, something on piranha at some point. Maybe a shorty. The movie? (laughs) Well, we'd have to mention it. Sure. But, uh, Yeah, because I think piranha are misunderstood, and, um, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, probably because of that movie, like, I think there was the notion that it's like playground stuff that you hear. Mm -hmm. Like, if you fall in a pool of piranhas, then, you know, you'll be bones in five minutes, Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And I don't think that's true, because I always kind of had that notion, and then when you would see people in the rivers of the Amazon where there are piranha, I would just be like, what are you doing? You're about to be bones from the waist down, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's just not the case. I think the coolest, creepiest thing about the piranha is when you go to an aquarium and you see them, and they're not moving. Uh, Because you're used to fish swimming around, and those piranha are just motionless in water.
0: I've never noticed that before. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's very unless those weren't real piranha. (laughs) They were Were just wax piranha. (laughs) Were they on a string? (laughs) Yep. No, I think I think they'll. we'll have to get into that, but I know I've seen motionless piranha. Uh,
0: there's one other thing to steer clear of, and that's the candiru, which is a parasitic catfish that is found in the Amazon River. And if you're not careful, it will swim up your urethra.
1: Oh, we talked about that in something.
0: We should talk about that in every episode, just to make sure that never happens to a Stuff You Should Know listener.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Piranha can remain motionless for hours. I just... I had to confirm that it wasn't crazy. Very nice. You're not crazy. I could have told you that. You want to take a break? Yeah, let's take our last break and we'll talk about, um, well, other great things you can find there and how humans are destroying those things.
3: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So, Chuck, we talked about how biodiverse the um, Amazon is. And that mm. in and of itself is worth preserving. Just the fact that there's that many animals and that many different animals. And I think, what, four, 400 billion trees was the estimate? Yeah. Just that there's all that life that lives there, it makes it automatically worth protecting. But just within biodiversity, there's there's even more reason to protect that life because when you take all those different animals, and all those different trees and you put them together on this one type of geography, and topography, with this, these different types of climate, climate and you put it all together, you have a very unique biome that produces all sorts of ecological services that humans benefit from, like drinking water purification, uh, decomposition of waste, um, getting rid of parasites and um, disease, all these different amazing things that the Amazon does comes from the biodiversity, all the interactions of all these different types of animals that have evolved to fill this these different ecological niches in this in these ecosystems and it produces all these benefits from us. So there's number two and the list just keeps going from there.
1: Yeah. I mean medicines that we use, a lot of these have come from the Amazon. And that's what that Sean Connery movie was about is, you know, is the cure for cancer just somewhere in some jungle waiting to be discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've heard of ACE inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, uh, which can help control hypertension that comes from studies of the venom of the fair de lance snake,
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, led to the development of that. So that's just one example of the many medicines that we've, uh, derived and synthesized from the region. Did I say region? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm getting very fancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and other things we can learn. Uh, Olivia pointed out another cool example of something that we haven't figured out yet, but, uh, the leaf cutting ant, which I think we talked about in the ants episode, they avoid leaves mm-hmm. with uh, that are naturally antifungal. And so when they're harvesting this vegetation for their fungus farms, they know to stay away from those. We don't quite get how they do it, but we might could study them and learn that and maybe even learn how to control fungal growth where we need it. Yeah, it's going to be a future treatment for athlete's foot just around the corner.
0: Maybe. Um, and you'll notice, everybody, like you might be waiting for us to be like, and it's the reason we can all breathe, thanks to all the oxygen. It actually is not true. Yes, yeah. the Amazon puts out a lot of oxygen for us. That's great, but the the reason we are all here on Earth breathing is because of ocean algae. Yeah, uh, that's really who we have to thank. But that's not to downplay the role of the um, sure. of the rain, uh, Amazon rainforest. One of the things that definitely has a huge uh, impact on is um, the water cycle and that uh, the Amazon actually produces its own weather and then recycles it five, six times and then sends it along off to different parts of the world. Um, And every single day through transpiration of all the um, plants in the Amazon rainforest, 20 billion tons of water vapor are released every single day. That's definitely significant.
1: Yeah, it affects rain as far as the Midwest of the United States Mm -hmm. and all the way down as south as Argentina, apparently. Yeah. Um, The big sort of uh, benefit and now concern of the Amazon, though, uh, which is what has been on the radar of humans for a while, and there's been a lot of awareness in the past few decades Mm -hmm. around it, Mm -hmm. um, is that it's a carbon sink. a Really, really important carbon sink for planet Earth uh, to the tune of, about a hundred and twenty-three billion tons of carbon uh and just buried in the ground there. Yeah. Which is great and valuable, but the problem is is what's been going on since the late nineteen seventies, which is burning hundreds of thousands of square miles of the rainforest and releasing our, all of that carbon into the air.
0: Yeah, because not only is it in the ground, it's um, so it's locked into the wood of living trees. But when those trees aren't living anymore, and in particular when they burn, all that carbon gets released all at once, where like if a tree falls over in the woods— whether there's somebody there to hear it or not, doesn't matter. As it decomposes, it slowly releases carbon. If you burn mm-hmm. a tree, it releases a ton of carbon all at once. And if you burn a huge swath of trees, that's a big carbon release. And yes, the Amazon has been burning, burning, burning since the 70s, um, largely to make way for agriculture, In the most, for the most part, cattle grazing. They're yeah. burning down the Amazon to make pastures for cattle uh, for the most part. And um, as a result, they're actually concerned that if it hasn't happened already, that in the not too distant future, the Amazon will transfer from being a net absorber of carbon, a carbon sink, to a um, carbon emitter, a net emitter of carbon, where it will put out more carbon than it holds in, which is terrible. You, you don't want your the world's largest carbon sink aside from the ocean, the world's largest land-based carbon sink, how about that, Um, to turn into a a net emitter. That would be a bad thing. And it all is basically driven by fire in one way or another.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it's because of uh, climate change. Even where there haven't been these fires, uh, I think, like, the southeastern part of the forest hasn't Mm -hmm. uh, been as as burned down yet. Uh, But they have also become a net emitter because... Trees there are dying. They're dying too fast. They're dying faster than they can grow. Um, And a lot of it is because of the warming climate, hotter, drier conditions on average, um, and then the level of rising carbon dioxide in the air. So more CO2 is going to make a tree grow faster, which is good in a way, but faster growing trees die younger. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they die, they decompose and then release that carbon again. So it's this cycle where it's sort of feeding itself almost. Right. In the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, it's definitely the wrong direction. Um, another part of the problem, too, is that will affect that um, that water vapor and all of the yeah. uh, weather that it impacts. Um, and it will also make the Amazon less rainy because as more and more portions of the forest become deforested, that rain that is hit, that hits the canopy and the overstory and then trickles down slowly to the understory and the shrub layer and then the forest floor and gets like basically trapped in the forest floor and becomes that nice humidity that keeps the whole thing going and keeps the plants flourishing that rain just runs off into the river and it doesn't get locked into the soil so that just leads to further and further deforestation and then the up the i guess the the result it. of it <laughs> no nope, i'm not going to say <laughs> it the result of all of this is that these forest lands turn into grasslands, um, savannas, and that's just not nearly as big of a carbon sink. Um, That's not, again, that's not what we want the Amazon rainforest to be. Even just just for the fact that you don't want to lose the Amazon rainforest, that's enough to do something about this, let alone all of the sub-details that make the Amazon what
1: it is and make it valuable for all these different reasons. Yeah, so if you're out there and you're saying, so that's what Don Henley's been going on about. Mm-hmm. That's what Don Henley's been going on about for all these years yeah. and a lot of other people. Uh, and when it comes to taking action like that, um, I'm glad people like Don Henley are raising awareness and literally doing like uh, feet on the ground work and raising money when he's not suing people. But the the government is where it really comes into play. And wealthy nations uh, chipping in is where it comes into play, because mm-hmm. for about the last 20 years or so. Uh, governments in South America have tried to curb deforestation here and there and have done a decent job. Uh, Some people say it's too little too late. It's obviously never too late to try. Um, But again, if we've passed that tipping point, then it literally may be too late in the long run. Um, But Brazil, where, like we said, 60 percent of the forest is, they're going to be a big contributor one way or the other. And it's sadly driven by politics. So Uh, It hit a six-year high, deforestation, uh, just last year in 2022. And that was the end of a three-year period where uh, the conservative president, uh, how do you pronounce his first name? Is Jair Jair? Uh, Bolsonaro was saying, yeah, we need money. And the way to do that is to cut down and burn these forests. And before that, uh, we had a drop in deforestation uh, in a pretty big way under the leftist president, Uh, Luiz, great name, Inacio Lula da Silva. And this is from 2003 to 2011. Mm -hmm. And he's back in power now. I think he's the only Brazilian president to be elected three times is what I read. Oh, is that right? I thought this was just a second. But, yeah,
0: I guess he was two-term and now this is his third term, huh?
1: Yeah, so he's back and he's saying, hey, we got to reverse these policies and protect these lands.
0: If you look at uh, charts of... um Deforestation under different presidents when when Lula came in, that's what he's affectionately called in Brazil, it just drops. Deforestation just drops off precipitously. Um, I saw it was down by like two-thirds, I believe, during his administration. And so not only did he institute protection for the rainforest, Brazil's long had plenty of laws against things like illegal mining, um illegal agriculture, um protections for indigenous land. That they just weren't enforcing, and they definitely yeah. stopped enforcing when Bolsonaro came in into power. Um, that 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 all they have to do is start enforcing some of these, and that will just have enormous effects. But in addition to that, they're also like, okay, like there are reasons people engage in illegal mining. There are reasons people um, use like like. Uh, Forest fires to drive indigenous people off their land because this land is valuable for mm-hmm. people who are in some places and times desperate for money to feed themselves and their family. It's not yeah. totally under, uh, not ununderstandable, especially on a more local level. When you get right. into like large politics, it's all just disgust and greed. It's the definition of greed of demolishing a global good for personal gain. I don't believe that that
1: also translates to the local level where you're trying to feed your family, right? Sure, but what you can't do as a wealthy nation is just say, you guys need to change what you're doing without chipping in and helping some.
0: Right, right. So there's a couple of ways to do this, and one that I believe Brazil is um, really interested in uh, internally um, is figuring out how to exploit the Amazon without –
1: Har- harming exploiting it, the Amazon.
0: <laughs> right? Without doing exploiting it in a sustainable way, and I mean sure, exploiting yeah. like taking its the wealth of nature from it, like oils and um, nuts and fruits, and getting into ecotourism that isn't actually harmful. That's a right. big that's a big f- way to to kind of say, hey, you don't have to do this illegal mining anymore. Here's some other stuff we can do, and you're going to make even more money to be able to sustain your family, and the forest will continue to thrive. The other way is like you said. Going to wealthy nations being like, hey, this is a global common good. Uh, You guys think that it should uh, be around, that the biodiversity alone means that it should be protected. Well, then chip in. If this is like belongs to all of humanity, why should we be the only ones who have to suffer to preserve it? Because there's a lot of stuff they could extract like oil in the Amazon that they're saying, pay us not to do that. Like we could use that and to keep up and pay off the debts that we owe you guys. So pay us to to leave it there and then the Amazon gets preserved and then we don't have to um, we don't have to extract this oil to support ourselves.
1: Yeah. And oftentimes that payment, you you know, kind of mentioned it is in the form of debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And there's been a big push in the past, uh, I feel like, 15 to 20 years for wealthier countries to forgive the debt of uh, poorer countries. And I think Bono is big into this cause, but I think more in Africa. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I don't remember, but I feel like he's tried to raise awareness for that and kind of push for uh, debt forgiveness. And if some of these you know, people like Brazil and Ecuador and Colombia had debt forgiveness, they may not be doing the mining and the oil drilling. Although the cynic in me says that someone would come along and try and just exploit it for the riches of it, uh, not necessarily to pay the debts. Uh, but one thing we have found that works, like we mentioned at the very beginning, and we're coming full circle here, is that. What they have squarely found is that returning control of this land to the uh, indigenous cultures there has seen a massive, I think, a two-thirds decrease in deforestation in areas where indigenous people have full ownership rights. Mm -hmm. So there's your answer right there, is give it back to them and say, how would you like to treat this land? Probably how you always wanted it treated.
0: Right, but also that means... So that, that's, that's saying you're protecting that by giving it back, by saying, like, this is protected area, this is indigenous territory, you can exploit it. But that still leaves the problem of the non-indigenous people who are trying to make a living out of it. And again, you come into the wealthier countries and say, why don't you guys chip in? And actually, Chuck, there's been studies... Of people um, like households in North America, Norway's really big on it, Um, and I believe the UK uh, of what's called willingness to pay, WTP, among distant beneficiaries. That's people like you and me who are probably never going to set foot in the Amazon, but we still want the Amazon to be around. And I've seen as much as um, Norway uh, households are willing to pay as much as 100 euros per year to keep the Amazon, um, intact as it is now in the United States, uh, we've been shown to be willing to pay as much as $5 for every percentage of forest lost avoided. So if they can predict how much would be lost and you say, well, this is going to save 15%, the average American household would be willing to pay $5 per percent for that 15%. And that the most agreed upon way of doing this is to say, how about let's, let's, let's make this happen. And then we're just going to make it a special tax that you pay when you pay your income tax every year. And each household pays 50, 60 bucks. And when you start to put that together among all households in America and then households in other Western nations, you suddenly have a really giant fund to preserve the Amazon.
1: Yeah, Pretty neat. And, you know, if you're looking for charities, uh, I, I have not vetted all of these, uh, but just a cursory search. And I do recommend, Anytime you're giving to charities, vet them and do your due diligence and check them out and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just cursory search. Uh, there are lists of, you know, best charities for protecting the rainforest, uh, like the Rainforest Trust, uh, Amazon Conservation, Cool Earth, Rainforest Foundation, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch. There are all kinds of them out there. I don't know which one. Uh, Don Henley's. Oh, here it is. The Hotel California Fund.
0: no. No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, okay, <laughs> I got you. Yeah, you oh, really man. did. I'm surprised. Yeah. All right, <laughs> what is the name of his? I don't know. Oh, okay, can we look it up? No, but as long as it's not that, that's fine. I'm sure you can okay. search Don Henley <laughs> Amazon Fun. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else? Uh, I got nothing else. Well, um, I thought this is a pretty good episode. I would say it's a throwback episode to like the 80s, like save the Amazon, but it's pretty much been ongoing ever since then, huh? Yeah. Uh, Well, if you want to know more about preserving the Amazon, just start looking around to find out how you can help. And I'm sure you'll find all sorts of cool ways. And Godspeed to you for doing that. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail.
1: Uh, I'm going to call this hot off the presses, another DeLorean. And by the way, you know, I asked for, I'm sure you'd notice in the emails, I asked for calls for people to let me take a ride in one or Mm -hmm. drive one and it turns out we have a lot of stuff you should know listeners that own DeLoreans yeah who knew yeah I mean I don't know by a lot but I feel like we got a dozen or so emails at least from people in different places saying Chuck you're on when you want to do it I know it's pretty cool so I mean I'm gonna save all those and then I know there's one in Boston a couple in Canada are you gonna Uh, do them all Yeah, that should do them all. (laughs) Drive all the DeLoreans. Yeah. (laughs) Just do a big road trip. No, I'm going to figure it out, though, and and meet up with somebody. Okay. Uh, But I'm going to call this another DeLorean email. Um, Love the DeLorean app. I actually owned one. Learned a few fun things about it that I thought you might be interested in. Uh, When I was younger, my grandmother left my siblings and me money specifically for our first cars. Uh, A serendipitous amount of time later, I saw one for sale on the side of the road. Um, a, a collector of World War II cars was thinning out his car collection, uh, and of course I wanted it as a sound financial investment uh, for a pre-driver's license teen. I was 14. I can't believe this person <laughs> bought a, <laughs> a DeLorean at 14. Mm-hmm. I bought a moped at 12 once, but this <laughs> pales in comparison <laughs> to that. Uh, the kind that you, uh, was a bicycle as well? hmm Like a true moped? Yeah, it also didn't work. Yeah, they never do. No. Uh, As a sound financial investment for a pre-driver's licensed teen, my mother agreed to spot the rest of the 16500 As soon as we could, we got a McFly vanity plate for it. My sister drove us around town for a joyride. Uh, I love this person pre-bought a car before they could even drive. Yeah. A DeLorean, no less. Yeah. Uh, we went through a Chick-fil-A drive-through and ultimately couldn't get our order through the very tiny window, mm-hmm. so we had to back up and drive back in with enough allowance to fully open the gull wings as the whole staff looked through the window at us. Nice. Um, I would just sit in this Lazy Boy-level, comfortable, almost horizontal seat of my stainless steel paperweight. Wow. Uh, and here's a few fun facts. Uh, there's a sign behind the seats that says, this vehicle is negative Earth. Hm. Hates Earth. Still have no idea what that means, is what Kat says. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a one, by, a one foot by one foot by one foot-ish safe that the DeLorean key opens hidden directly behind the driver's seat. Oh, wow. Man, I had no idea about any of this. Didn't know this either. And there was a red button on the center console. I don't remember what it was supposed to do because it didn't work. It was just an unlabeled red round push button. Wow. it's <laughs> <You're> Just daring <laughs> oh, you to. Oh, man. I always wanted to put a little Acme Co... Sticker. (laughs) I'm sorry, a glass case and a tiny tiny hammer around it, you Mm -hmm. know, for emergencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is from uh, Kat uh, Chafin. Wow. And that's a great email, Kat. This may be the best DeLorean email we got. Hands down.
0: I mean, everybody else's DeLorean email was pretty great, but this was, none of them topped this. Way to go, Kat. That's an amazing story. Thanks for all the extra info about the DeLorean, too.
1: Didn't know about that safe. I'm sure there was never cocaine in those (laughs) safes. Never. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us like Kat did, you can write us an
0: email, too. Send it to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
4: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: I am
1: Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, In hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist.